0: So last weekend, we kicked off our series in Revelation. It's the last mini-series in our Storyline of the Bible series. It's the last book of the Bible. It's a tough book of the Bible. And I asked this question. If you knew how the hard thing in your life right now is going gonna, is gonna to end, and that it's a good ending, that there's going to be a lot of good things that come out of this really, really hard thing, or this thing that's confusing and you just don't know where it's going to go, Would it make a difference today on how you're facing this hard thing if you knew that it's going to be a good ending? Would you respond differently? Would you think differently? Would you act differently? Would your attitudes change? And uh, I think we all agreed last week that um, when we know the end of the story, it really changes how we do life in the middle of it. And in God's good grace, he uh, doesn't just walk through us through the story Uh, Our stories, his story, which is a subset of his story. But he actually tells us where it's going to go. What a great thing that we know the end of the story. That's what Revelation is about. And the premise here is that when God gives us insight in the end of the story, our stories included, is uh, we are better positioned to honor him today as we see who he is and trust him when it's hard not giving up and not giving in when we're tempted to maybe compromise or just kind of accommodate and assimilate to culture, and we're positioned to walk faithfully today in the messy middle of our story when we don't know how it's going to end exactly, but we know the end of the story, and we're ready for his return, and we're longing for that day when he comes and makes all things right. So if you weren't here last week, we just started kind of catching up with this special book because it, it comes to us in a different style. It's, a, it's apocalyptic. That's the word revelation. It means having to do with things at the end of history. And literally, it talks about an uncovering, a revealing of something previously hidden. And so there's this high symbolic language that's used that we got to catch up with. It's prophetic in its tone, this letter to the seven churches. And so we understand it's not just revealing things about the future in heaven and on earth, but it's revealing and pulling back the curtains on today. What's going on today? What what is the church the Christian faced with today? Who is Christ today? What, What is Christ doing in heaven? And what is heaven doing around Christ? These are really important things that God is giving us And this is not a secret code. And it reads like it sometimes like, what in the world is going on with all these crazy animals and things and symbols? What what do we make of it? It's not a secret code to help us decipher the events before the end of time. This is a book that was written to encourage real people like you and me who are in the messy middle of hard things. There was persecution. What was vogue in the day was the worship of the emperor, the imperial cult it was called, temples all around, many of them in these very cities that we're going to be looking at where the letters were written. There was pressure to worship Caesar, very likely Domitian, when John's writing this from the island of Patmos where he's in exile at the end of the first century, late 90s, 95 A.D., And it was meant to encourage and strengthen the church, not to frighten them, not to go, all right, guys, pull out your charts and let's have eschatology fights over this. No, it was meant to strengthen, to encourage that Christ is on the throne, that he's coming back. He's going to make it all right. And he's going to give us everything that we need today to be faithful and to have a faithful witness to him. And so what we're going to do here is um, we're not going to have an opportunity to read through all the seven letters, but grab your Bible and turn to Revelation chapter 2, and we'll read some of the letters. And we'll say some things about the structure of the letters and these different churches, and I think maybe we can even draw some conclusions about the different kinds of churches that are represented. Because remember that number seven, we talked about it. Seven, like many of the numbers, in uh, the book of Revelation and in apocalyptic literature. By the way, we'll read some of the same literature in places like the book of Daniel, Ezekiel, the prophet Zechariah in the Old Testament. And so numbers are often symbolic, as are animals, as are colors. And the number seven represents completeness or wholeness. And so this is say these are the, the complete group of churches. These seven represent All churches, past, present, and future. And so we read about the church in Ephesus first in chapter 2. To the angel or the messenger, very likely the pastor of the church of Ephesus, Right, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. This is Jesus speaking. The one who holds the seven stars, right, those pastors in his right hand, and walks among the seven golden lampstands back in chapter 1. We know those are symbols for the church. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you've tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You've persevered and have endured hardship for my name, and have not grown weary, all kinds of things he's commending him for, but now he brings the charge against them, right? Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, turn back is the concept here, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. I'm going to remove your church not going to have a witness together anymore as a church. But you have this in your favor. It goes back to good news, right? You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, we're going to see this repeated seven times. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. All right, so what we see in this very first letter is the very first kind of structure that's repeated in most all the other letters. It goes like this. Christ opens up with this command to write to the messenger, to the angel, to the pastor of the church, in this case, the church of Ephesus. By the way, Paul planted this church. He was there for three years. When we read Paul's letters to Timothy... Timothy is actually the pastor of this church, Ephesus. It's the first church right on the coast. When you think about where Patmos is and moving to the mainland, it's the logical place to go. And the seven letters, in a sense, follow the circuit that the messenger would have taken as he moved in a counterclockwise fashion from Ephesus to Smyrna to Pergamum to Thyatira to Sardis, etc., And so it starts with this command, and then Jesus reveals things about himself. One of the things we're going to see here is that seeing Christ, because the revelation fundamentally isn't about events as it is about Christ. It's a revelation about someone, about Christ, who's at the center of God's redemptive plan who's at the center of God's revelation of how we best understand it. We get glimpses of him in creation. We understand about God in his word, and we see him perfectly in Christ, who the written word is all about, the living word of God. And so with each of these letters, there's this greeting to the church, the messenger, the pastor, if you will, and then Christ shares something unique pointing out some of his unique attributes that were mentioned in that vision that was all about Jesus in chapter 1. Things that they needed to know about Jesus, things that they needed to see clearly about Jesus, because when Jesus is clearly in view, he was going to make all the difference on whether they were or were not going to be faithful as witnesses to Christ, ready for his return, enjoying all the promises that he has for his people, new heaven, new earth, eternal life. So he speaks to them, and then he reveals himself to them, and then he commends them, and then he also condemned them. But there's two churches. There's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with those churches. Then the last thing he does is he talks about the promise, and he uses different language to t- talk about the same thing. He says, look, if you're a faithful witness, if you don't give up right now when you're persecuted and it's hard, you don't give in to the pressures. Remember what Paul says in Romans 12, chapter 12, verse 2. He says, don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. There was lots of pressure to worship idols. There was lots of pressure to get into this sensual, sexual immorality it was wrapped up into the culture of their day. And, and the pressures were real. He says, look, if you don't give in, you, you will be faithful. And in being faithful to the end, you will be victorious. And here's the reward for the victorious, eternal life. And he uses all these different metaphors for eternal life, the tree of life, the victor's crown, a new name written in stone, the right to rule over nations, being a pillar in his temple. So that's this repeated pattern that we're going to see throughout the seven letters. Now, when you see these seven churches, I I want us to understand the first one and the last one, one and seven, are very similar. Two and six are really similar. And then three, four, and five, we could cluster together. So you work your way from the outsides, one and seven, Ephesus, and Laodicea. What we see in these churches are three kinds of spiritual conditions. So just thinking of of a medical analogy here. You've got the, the first and the last that are on life support. They're in hospice. They're in palliative care. They're at death's door spiritually. Then you've got uh, these churches, two and six, that are fit and trim and healthy. I mean, they're, they're ready. They're, they're in good shape, really healthy. And then you've got those middle churches that are in ICU. Critical care. They're, they're, they're in peril, and they better act quickly or, or their, their spiritual well-being will definitely be in jeopardy. So one in seven, Ephesus, Laodicea, their, their life support. Smyrna and Philadelphia, they're in good stead, right? They pass their annual physical with flying colors. The doc didn't have anything to say to them. They didn't need to lose weight. They didn't need to watch their diet. They're in good health, Jesus says. The others, though, uh, they're, they're in dire, dire place, critical care, ICU. Their lives are hanging in the balance. So let's look at these different groups, all right? This is what we're going to do. We're going to first look at Ephesus and Laodicea, the, the two outsides one, one and seven. They're on life support. Now, here's what we know is when we're getting descriptions of the churches it's, it's got that description because there's a lot of people that fit that description that are part of this church, and so the church has that description because the people in the church have that description, but not everybody. So there actually are faithful people in these churches, but the, the, the majority is not healthy. It's not healthy. So he'll have some good things to say about Ephesus. We just read them. They're tough. They're tenacious and suffering. They're vigilant for truth. As for Laodicea, uh, they just they just threw up a big old goose egg. Jesus has nothing good to say about the church that he says you're lukewarm and I'm gonna spit you out of my mouth. Ephesus has this interesting mix, and it's an interesting mix that can happen today. A church that is vigilant for truth passionate about the bible studies the bible defends truth preaches truth stands for truth the problem is all their good orthodoxy so they're thinking right they they're 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 defenders of the truth but they they've lost their grip on love old translations you've Lost your first love. You've left your first love. Very likely, a a, a double understanding of their love for Christ that is always shown not just in their belief in the truth and obedience to the truth, but full obedience to the truth, which manifests in loving my brothers and sisters. So he doesn't say, go back and believe the things you, you once believed. He says, go back and do the things because you have fallen a great distance and you need to go back to the beginning when you were marked, not with just a desire to hang on to truth, but a desire to live lives of love. Jesus spoke about this very thing to his disciples, right? In John 13, a new command, I give you, love one another as I've loved you. So you must, ju- so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Paul says the very same thing in Galatians 5, 6. The only thing that counts, it's a great phrase, is faith expressing itself in love, through love. So then there's the church of Laodicea. Flip over to chapter 3. The church in Laodicea. Verse 14, the angel of the church in Laodicea Write these things, these are the words of the amen, the faithful and the true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I'm rich, I've acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. So look at that verse again up on the slide on the screen, 317. They're they're delusional, and we know why they're delusional is because they have so much. They have everything that they need, the text tells us. They were a wealthy church. They were an affluent church. History tells us when there was a big earthquake and Rome offered assistance, they said, Caesar, we're good. We take care of ourselves. We got all the resources we need to rebuild our city. And what happened is when you have a lot of money that can buy a lot of things and bring a lot of comfort and health and security into your life, it dupes you into thinking you don't need anything, including the gospel and Christ and forgiveness and new life. And so, they're not hot, they're not cold, they are useless. What's he talking about? Lukewarm, not hot, no co- not cold. Well, La- Laodicea had a water problem. They didn't have a source of water. Up in the mountains in Hierapolis, wonderful hot springs. We love hot springs, especially right now, right? Nothing better. Uh, Colossae, where the letter to the Colossians is written, they had fresh water. And so, they would... Get the water to Laodicea through these aqueducts, but by the time they got the fresh water to Laodicea, it wasn't potable anymore. It wasn't drinkable anymore. They had problems with it. In other words, what he's saying is, you're not just disgusting. He's not just saying that. He's saying, I wish you were hot. I wish you were cold, because then you'd be of use to me and to this world. But you're neither hot, which is good medicinally, and you're neither cold, which would be great for just drinking, right? You're, You're neither of those. And so I'm gonna spit you out of my mouth. You are useless. Ephesus, you are cold, unloving. And what did they need to see? Not just themselves, but first of all, they needed to see Christ, a clear vision of Christ is what they need, is what we need today. What did, what did he reveal to them? I'm walking through the candelabras, right? I'm walking through the lampstands. I'm here with you. I'm present. I see you. I know everything about you. You think you've got all these things. You don't. You're just looking at one side of the equation, what you can see physically, what you can hold in your hands, but there's a whole other world and there's a whole other reality and that actually is the reality that lasts forever and you don't measure up. He needed them to know that he was faithful and that in his faithfulness, he would reveal the lethargy, the death, the uselessness of their lives for God at this time. And so I think there's just huge things. So these are churches that were real people in real places. These letters were written to them. But there's a huge message for us, Door Creek. We love the Bible here. It's like our second value, the Bible's authority. Centering our lives on God's truth. We, We teach out of the Bible. We study the Bible in our groups and in our classes. This is what... All the churches in our larger church family, um, we're we're united in our doctrine and our Bible. This is a big thing for us. We believe it to be true. And yet what, what the Bible is warning us here is you could have your head on straight and have a disconnected, very diseased heart condition. And we could find ourselves having great theology, but regularly with ourselves and others be in the business of malpractice, where we're actually a mean, a cold, and unloving church. The Bible says we're to truth it in love. Truth and love always go together. And so, this is a great warning for us, as is the church in Laodicea, because we're wealthy. You go, I'm not wealthy. Trust me, if you just to join me in Haiti, you'd come back and go, oh, my word, I just had no idea. If you, if you went with me to Turkana in the northern, northern regions of, of Kenya or in Liberia or to our partners in Honduras or all these other places, you'd quickly understand we are wealthy and wealth isn't an evil, but it is a spiritual liability. It's a spiritual liability that could dupe us into thinking I'm good, God, I don't need you because everything I need, my money can provide. And we find ourselves losing our way and losing our purpose. We can think we have everything, but like Laodicea, be in a position where we have actually nothing to offer to our world. Nothing. Nothing because we don't have the spiritual resources. So that's one in seven. Those are the guys that are on death's door. Those are the guys that God is about to reject, that God is about to say, you guys, I'm going to remove your church, your witness to the watching world. Then there's Smyrna and Philly. They, They get it right, Smyrna and Philadelphia. They're fit. They're a really different picture from Laodicea. They're poor. They're persecuted group. They're slandered, which cuts deep, and yet they're faithful. Jesus reminds them that they may have to die. They may have to die for their faith. But he also gives a clear vision of who he is. And the vision of who he is doesn't just go forward. So one of the things we always want to understand is when John has given this revelation by Christ by, from the Father, that it's always connecting Christ his work here on earth, his perfect life, his substitutionary death, and his powerful resurrection over the dead to all that's going to happen when he comes back and makes all things right, returning not as the savior of the world, but the judge of all people. And so it's always connecting these two things. And so the vision they have is of a resurrected Christ, the one who was dead, but now is alive. Why, Why was that important to a persecuted church? Because they might die for the faith. And when when he's promising them that they will live forever and that the second death isn't going to take them out and touch them and that he has opened the door to heaven and has the keys and the authority to the doors of heaven, that he's not just saying, hey, you can count on it because I'm saying it. He's saying you can count on it not just because I'm saying it, because I did it. I lived, I died, and I conquered death. I opened up the door through my death, and that's why you can have hope in eternal life because of me. Because of me. And they needed to hear that. Not only did they need to hear that, they needed to hear every one of the warnings. Because you know what? Just because they've been faithful is no guarantee that they will be faithful. They needed to hear. And that's why the, when, when, when the Spirit's saying, listen up, it says, whoever has ears to hear, he's talking about everybody who was going to receive those letters, and he's talking about everybody, us today, who's reading these letters. And so we are reminded again that faithful Christians can and will suffer. We need to have a theology for suffering. Some of us have grown up in churches where we don't have that. And that is not only short-sighted and very discouraging way to navigate a, a, a life that's filled with it, but it's a complete misunderstanding of the gospel. And the good news is all about the sufferings of Christ and how he was victorious through sufferings even to death. And that is... For us as well. So we can expect suffering, but they weren't faithful because it was easy, and they weren't faithful because they were really strong. Everything about the church shows that they were weak, they were beaten down, they were poor, they were slandered. It wasn't easy wherever they went, anywhere they went, in their cities <coughs> Smyrna, Philadelphia. But the future promise, the clear vision of Christ, meant everything to their present faithfulness. Then there's the middle three, the critical care bunch, Pergamum, Thyatira, and Sardis. Good things to say. Pergamum is in the midst of tough times. They're staying true to Christ. Not everybody's renounced their faith. Many are standing strong for God. In Thyatira, they're commanded for their love, their faith, their service, and perseverance, and how they're growing and doing even more than they did at first. In Sardis, there are some who haven't had their clothes Soiled. It's this this image of you're staying pure. You're staying faithful. You're not giving in to the pressures that were real in that city. But there were things that were definitely wrong. So go back to chapter 2, verse 12. Read about Pergamum. Pergamum and Thyatira have some of the same deals going on, idolatry. That's mixed in with sexual immorality, any sex outside of marriage, as God has defined marriage, one man plus one woman for life. So here's what we read in 2.12. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. What he wanted them to see is Christ, the word of God, this double-edged sword, this symbol for the powerful Double edged sword that penetrates not just minds, but our own hearts. This great offensive weapon that God has given us. He wants them to see his word, the sword, truth, because man, truth is in jeopardy in these three places. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. This is a dark city. There's a lot of demonic things going on, there's a lot of teachings. Of, of Satan that are going on, that's not of God. Yet you too true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Ananias, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, here it is. I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold the teaching of Balaam, and who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin, that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. He's referencing an Old Testament prophet who was hired by a wicked king who wanted this prophet Balaam to curse God's people, and he wouldn't. But this Balak, the king, had a lot of money, and Balaam wanted in on the money, and though he couldn't curse them, he, at the end of the day, said, look, I can't curse them, but I'll tell you, here's how you conquer these people. You send your beautiful women and they, they mix together, they have sex together, and they worship your idols, and the whole thing falls apart. So he's talking about this sensuality around worship that's the same kind of a thing that the prophet Balaam suggested to King Balak. He's saying that's the same stuff going on. It was going on in Balaam's day, it was going on in Pergamum's day, and it's going on in our day. Likewise, he goes on to say, verse 15, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. That's a second reference to the Nicolaitans. And nowhere in Scripture are we told exactly what's going on, but it's very likely, scholars believe, it's the same kind of thing where they take the freedom we have in Christ and abuse it to say, so we can do anything and they start mixing in all this pagan worship and all this idolatry, and it's sensual and sexual immorality is all part of this pagan cultic worship, the Nicolaitans. And he says, people are following down that path. So he says, repent. Otherwise, I'll soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. But then there's also... Not only what he says to Pergamum and Thyatira, but to Sardis. Look at chapter 3. These are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive. Underline that reputation. You have a rep of being alive. But let me tell you who you really are and where you're really at. You're dead. Wake up. You've fallen asleep. Strengthen what remains is about to die, for I found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. And so we've got these churches in critical care, Christians in critical care. In Sardis, they are just thinking they're good, because man, they've got a reputation. So maybe one time they really were good, they were healthy, they were vibrant. They've held to truth and they loved each other. They were engaged in the work of God and His mission. They were faithful witnesses. Their candlelight was shining bright and they're resting on their past. Do you know how many churches are always living in the past of the glory days? That's not a good sign. It's not a good sign. It doesn't matter what our reputation was. It's where are we today? and they needed to know where they are today had very little to do with where they once were. Your daddy says, you're asleep. You're on death's door, asleep on the job, dead, apathetic, resting in your laurels, still reading the old clippings, which has nothing to do with who you are and where you are today. Past performance is not indicative of your present standing, not just for the financial instruments, right, for our spiritual lives. In Thyatira, they had tolerated with this false teacher, this prophetess, this woman, who was like wicked Queen Jezebel, who again led God's people down this path of idolatry. The idol was Baal, and the worship was surrounded with sexual immorality. Super common. And then Pergamum, the same mix of idolatry and sexuality. So what did these churches need? The faithful churches needed to clearly see a resurrected Christ and his authority to make good on his promise because he's already walked through death's door. The churches that were on life support like Ephesus and Laodicea, they needed to see Jesus and in seeing his holiness to see themselves and to see their true condition. What are these middle three? Those in ICU, they needed to to see Jesus, and they needed to see the truth. They needed to see the double-edged sword and to see how they've been compromising truth in the day of their cities and their lives. So we bring it home by making a few observations. The first is this. The threats to the church were of two kinds and came from two places. They came externally through persecution, suffering, and slander, and they came internally through false teaching. I don't think most of us today are aware of the internal threat. It is the greater threat to the church whenever we're reading the letters to the churches in the New Testament. The greatest threat is internal, not external. And the only way we're going to be prepared for that threat is to have clarity on truth. The people that were trained to spot counterfeits didn't study counterfeits. They study the truth. They know what it looks like. They know the markings of authentic money. And we're in peril if we don't know God's Word. We're in peril if we're not doing life with people who are discerning and can help us understand and sound the alarms. There's two kinds of threats. External, I think we know about it, and it's not as big in our day. But that doesn't mean things couldn't change greatly in a day where tolerance and pluralism is of the day. But you notice what happens when tolerance meets up with the claims of Christ, and He says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life, no one comes to the Father but through me. Ah, that tests pluralistic tolerance. And we ought not be surprised if there's a coming day when we might suffer greatly. I'm not saying we're not suffering for Christ as we stand ethically for him, but in a corporate way that they were in that day where they would be beaten and martyred for their faith. Not to say that's not happening in our world today, because it is. I'm talking about right here in our context. So the question here then is, so these are real churches in real places that have these real challenges, externally, internally, sometimes both. And uh, which of these churches are most like us? Which is most like me? You know, I'm a pastor, so I, I want to think, well, you know, I'm kind of a Smyrna, Philly church guy. I'm all good. I just went in for the physical, and man, But I, I, I know, I know oh too well that I, I just don't see myself as clearly as God does, as clearly as my wife does. <laughs> and so my hunch is there's something for me in these five churches that are wrestling with real things. Look at this slide, and I'll give you some kind of tags. Ephesus, you know, it's this cold orthodoxy. I think they're you could say this, they're, they're mean. Like you you love truth, but you're a mean person. You're not gracious, you're not kind, you're not forgiving. You slander people, you gossip, you're critical, you're mean. Oh, but you stand for truth. Maybe you're deceived, like Pergamum. You've lost your way. You've lost your truth. Compromised. Sensuality runs amok in your life. Sexual immorality is just part of who you are. But you're this chameleon, compromised, accommodating, assimilating Christian. And it's very worldly. There's really no difference from who you are and the rest of the world. You've just grown a toggle switch. And wherever we go, we just switch the toggle switch. And so we got all the right language here. But the rest of the week, we're Thyatira the rest of the week. Are we a dead church? We've lost our vitality. We're confused into thinking we're at the same place we were when we began with Jesus. We keep reading the clippings. We keep going back and we've... Disengaged with reality in the present? Or are we useless? Or just lukewarm? Who are we? And no matter who we are, the message is the same. Whoever has ears to hear, listen to the Spirit. And the Spirit is pointing us, and it's got the spotlight on Christ. We need to see Christ. This one who would even say to this Laodicean church that's despicable, nothing good to say, He, he says to the Laodicean churches, you see it up here on the screen, verses 19 and 20 of chapter 3, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. I'm coming at you with hard words because I love you. Because the opposite of love is not hatred, it's indifference. God is not indifferent to any of us and not to his church that's lost its usefulness, that he's ready to spit out. He says, I'm doing this, I'm saying this because I love you. So be earnest and repent, turn back. And here's what he says. Here I am. I'm standing at the door and knock. Oh, what a picture. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and eat with that person and they with me. He's not saying, I'm at the door and I'm going to knock it down. But I'm here. And I'm ready for relationship and to restore the relationship. Would you return? Would you open your lives to me? This is to a church. That once was walking with him, is that us? What the church needs, what you and I need, is a clear vision of Christ that we might see ourselves for who we are and hang on to the only hope that we have Jesus. Let's pray. So, Father God, we bless you for your word that has been like a mirror. First of all, it's been mirroring the beauties of who you are. But it's also been mirroring the things in our life. And we thank you that in your kindness, your mirror reminds us not of things, not just of the things that are unhealthy, but of things that are, that are healthy. And so we bless you, Lord, for any and all spiritual health. It's all by your grace. And yet for the things that aren't right, that put us in peril, that puts us in this place where we would lose our witness for you. Strengthen us. Encourage us. Because, Lord, we do believe that you are worth following, that you are worth suffering for, waiting for. Lord, we proclaim that you are greater than sex and that you are greater than our money and that you are greater than any and all other gods. And so that we would be faithful where it's hard today For your honor and glory, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.